I think it's every pastor's goal, maybe ambition, um, to do what Paul said. That when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he said, I did not fail to preach to you the whole counsel of the Word of God. And I think every, every pastor, uh, his goal, his ambition would be to preach every passage of Scripture in the Bible to, a, to a one church in his lifetime. I don't know how many do it. I don't know if I'm going to do it, but that's my goal. I would love to do that. And uh, you'll remember about this time last year, we were in the book of Colossians. And then this thing happened called COVID. And, uh, it, and the elders and I felt it would be better if we um, preached some sermons that address what we were going through as a nation. And and so, and then I did return to Colossians. I think I finished Colossians, but there was a chunk in Colossians that I missed, a little bit in chapter three. And I always, and that's been in the back of my mind ever since. And I'm like, you know, that's, there's so much good stuff there. And the Lord's timing is so amazing because I think where we're at as a church right now, that passage is going to be very pertinent to us. And so I've, I've developed a series called House Rules. It's about how Christ will be centered in our homes. How can we conduct ourselves as individual families to ensure that Christ is the center of our home? And so I'm really looking forward to preaching that. And I'm going to start next week. And so don't turn to Colossians right now. But that's where we're going to be next week. And I'm really, I really encourage you to try to stay the course to come. <clears throat> for that first sermon and stay. There's going to be seven sermons on that topic and I think it's going to be very practical and very helpful for us. And uh, But today we find ourselves in Numbers chapter 21. And I would invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 21. So we're going to be looking at Christ in the bronze serpent. A story that uh, is often told in Sunday school to children, works good on a flannel graph, but I think it's very helpful for us. Some very convicting items in this passage today. I was telling my dad this week, I think I might have preached, this This might be the, the one passage that I've preached almost more than any other one. Not quite, but almost. But I think the Lord has given me some fresh insight, something from my, from my heart Hopefully to your heart, I know the Lord spoke to me through this passage in a different way than He had before. So, let's go to Numbers chapter 21, just six verses. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. Let me go to the Lord in prayer one, one more time. Lord, I just pray that you, would, that you would use my preparation this week for your glory as we unpack this passage together. But Lord, I know this is a spiritual endeavor, so I pray, Father, that it would be Your Spirit expressing Himself through me and through Your Word to each one of us, to me included. And so I pray, Lord, that, that my mind will not get in the way of what You want to express through me, and I pray that there wouldn't be anybody here that allows their thoughts, their distractions, their mind to get in the way of what You have for them. So Lord, I think together we all pray that You would unite our hearts to fear Your name, you would open our eyes that we could see wondrous things out of your law. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and read the passage. Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Or they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. If you've been with us, of course, you know this is the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. What worthless food were they referring to there? The divine manna that came down from heaven? The little miniature Krispy Kremes that God just spread like dew over the ground for them to collect? They called it worthless food. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So in this passage, I just kind of want to tackle three topics at a time. First, I want to look at the sin, then we want to look at the judgment, and then we're going to look at the salvation. And so we're going to look at those three things. First, let's let's have an examination of the sin. Let's have an examination of the sin. Uh, Once again, they're grumbling, they're complaining. It says they're impatient. But grumbling, complaining, impatience seems a little bit like a minor sin to me. I would put that in air quotes. A minor sin to me for which to judge an entire nation unto death. Um, Does that seem a little harsh to anyone else here? But I think in this account, God is giving much needed lessons to Israel. One of which, and to us as well. But I think first of all, He is establishing the severity of sin to a fledgling nation that has just barely got their feet underneath them. They've been enslaved for hundreds of years. They are not in their homeland yet. They've never been in their homeland. They're wandering around in the wilderness in tents. They're eating daily just from food that God drops from heaven. And so they're just in the infancy stage of their nation, and God has to communicate to them the severity of their sin. You know, he, God knew where they were going as a nation. Right now, they're wandering in the wilderness, but eventually they're going to be a world power. When Solomon, by the time Solomon takes his reign, they've got trade routes coming from Africa and Arabia and India. They're a very wealthy nation. They're being ruled by the wisest man that ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. They've built this temple that has never been matched since. I mean, so they're, they're going places, not to mention where, where they're going to be eventually when Christ comes back and how we are spiritual Israel right now and we're scattered all over the globe. God sees where they're going, but right now they don't see any of that. Right now... They're a little upset that they have manna to eat. And so God sees, right now you're wandering in the wilderness. Eventually you're going to be a world power. So right now, in your infancy, you need to learn about the severity of sin. And this is a principle that we do in our own lives. I mean, everyone that's had a child, just this little, that they go from timeouts and maybe hand slaps to eventually becoming titans of industry and they're decision makers and they go from from diapers to influencers and they are leaders of men and women but when they're little we have to teach them the consequences of sin and i think that's what god is doing here 
And remember, I said this a few weeks ago, every time I read about Israel in the Old Testament, I I think about me. I see my story of salvation, of coming to Christ. And so in this, I'm also reminded how each individual believer, each one of you, you're you're on a course. And God's going to take you where you're going to go. And you may not know where you're at right now. You may feel like you're wandering in the wilderness right now struggling with sins that you think, man, I should be past this by now, or you just don't see how you're useful to anyone right now. You feel like you're being underutilized, but God has you on a course, and you're going to be a powerful man or woman of God. God has a plan for you, and He's going to express His Spirit through you. He's going to express His Spirit through you. We learned this from 1 Corinthians in a way that He won't express it through anybody else. He's going to use your unique personality but you've got to learn the lessons that God has for you right now when you're in your wilderness. So I think he's establishing the severity of sin. But also, maybe more importantly for us, I think he's presenting kind of a, a pattern for us to properly kind of break down and view our sins accurately. We all have sin in our life, and... We don't like to think a lot about it. As soon as we confess it, we want to be done with that. And we definitely don't like confessing it to other people. And it ends up being we don't think a lot about the nature of our sin. I think most of us view the offenses that we commit as much smaller than they actually are. But in this passage, we can see kind of the heart of what is behind every sin. Whether you're grumbling like them in the wilderness or whether you are committing adultery in secret and nobody knows about it, or whether you're embezzling from your company, or whether you are, have a habit of lying that you cannot break. Whatever the sin might be, I think all of them kind of follow this same course. We, they all come to the same heart issues that Israel had here. So let's break down their sin. Really, the only one that is stated here is it says that they were impatient. And they spoke against God and against Moses. They didn't want to be where they're at. But what really was happening? A lot more than just impatience was happening. First of all, notice that they are doubting God's promise. And every time you sin, you're doing the same thing. You're doubting God's promise. What promise are they doubting here? Well, it says at verse in uh, verse five, it says they, they they said, "Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die?" In the wilderness, they thought they were at their final, final location. We're going to die right here in the wilderness. And you can't blame them. They've been there for a long time. But in that statement, in the assumption that we're going to die here in the wilderness, they were doubting God's promise. What was God's promise? Well, you just need to go to the beginning of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 probably is where we'll see that. And you can skim back there if you want. But in Exodus chapter 3, we see the promise initially given to Moses, passed from Moses to the children of Israel before they even left Egypt. He said, I have come down, this is in chapter 3 and verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the promise. And Moses relayed this to Israel, and it says that the people believed when they heard the Lord had visited, and they bowed their heads, and they worshipped. And now, they're not just complaining. They, they might say, man, that doesn't seem right that we're getting killed by 
by serpents here. All I did was complain. And God would say, no, no, you weren't just complaining. You were doubting the promise I gave you. I assured you where I would take you, and you don't think I'm going to deliver. They're doubting God's promises. They're belittling God's deliverance. Again, they say, why have you brought us out of Egypt? They forgot so quickly how bad they had it in Egypt. Again, that same passage in Exodus 3, God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. But they had forgotten about their sufferings. They were belittling the deliverance that God had miraculously providing them, pulling them out of slavery and abuse in a foreign land, supernaturally delivering them. And now they're impatient and they're complaining. They're belittling God's deliverance. Also, they're also despising God's provision. We see that at the end of verse 5 where they refer to the miraculous manna as worthless food. They are despising God's deliverance. In fact, it says we loathe, loathe this worthless food. You don't hear that word a lot. Oh, I loathe you. There are some things that maybe you might loathe. They were loathing what God was supernaturally providing to keep them alive. And that's a real, that's a real clear picture of sin, isn't it? They loathed what was right and what was good. They craved what was wicked. In fact, uh, Psalm 78 is a, is a psalm that recaptures this story. And in that passage, in Psalm uh, 78, 18, it says, they tested God in their hearts by demanding the food that they craved. And when you sin, you are testing God in your heart by demanding whatever that satisfaction is that you crave. And oftentimes, when you are despising God's provision, doubting His promises, when you're belittling the deliverance that God has brought about in your life, when you go back to sin, a lot of times there's a, there's a complete switcheroo where you're taking what God has provided for you to enjoy and love and to spiritually sustain you, and you loathe it, and instead you're desiring that which really wasn't that satisfying in the first place. You remember... Um, Numbers chapter 11, I, I preached on this a few weeks ago, Numbers chapter 11, in verse uh, 4 through 6, we see their description of that which they were delivered from. It says, oh, they wept. It says the rabble, in verse 4 it says, there was a rabble among them that had a strong craving what a great description of sin. And the people of Israel also wept and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt, that it cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlics. Have you guys ever craved leek in your life? I didn't even know what a leek was. I went to the store and it looks like, it looks like corn without the corn. This is like, this is a leek. And they craved the leeks so badly. They just wanted the leeks. Oh, remember how, can you imagine walking through the Dead Sea, having the waters part, having the glory of God in a cloud and in fire, watching your enemies be utterly destroyed, having bread fall from heaven every morning faithfully and getting that food and then saying, oh, but if only we had the leeks back in Egypt. 
And they forgot that their children were being thrown into the river and eaten by crocodiles. They forgot that the midwives were instructed, if there's a male born, you kill them before they get out of that room. They forgot that they were enslaved and commanded to make bricks and not even given any straw. They forgot that they were enslaved, laborers without pay for generation after generation. Oh, but the leaks. Oh, but don't you remember those leaks? How silly. If only we could have the vision, whatever sin we're reaching for, instead of whatever Satan has put in our eyes, oh, that's what that is, to just look at this wilty, nasty old leak and say, that's what I'm reaching for. I'm, I'm longing for leaks whenever you are wanting something other than what God has provided for you. So, it wasn't just complaining. They were doubting God's promise. They were belittling God's deliverance. They were despising God's provision. Now what about our sins in our lives? Whatever little sin it is. The little white lie that you say, or the exaggerations maybe, or the the satisfaction that you know. I'd be embarrassed if the whole congregation knew I went after that sin, but I don't think it's that big a deal. Are you not doubting God's promise when you sin? What promises are you doubting when you sin? Well, Peter said, you will be holy. He quoted God in the Old Testament multiple times. said, you will be holy for I am holy. When you dabble in sin, are you not doubting that promise? What about Romans chapter 6 and verse 14? Sin will have no dominion over you since you are under grace. When you go into sin, are you living that promise out? Or are you doubting that promise that sin will have no dominion over you? What about John chapter 8? Verse 31 and 34, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you feel free from sin right now? Or do you feel in bondage to sin? He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And when you sin, you are denying this promise from Christ's own lips. So yeah, when you sin, you're doubting God's promise. When you sin, you're belittling God's deliverance. Does Christ's blood mean so little to you that that which you were rescued from at the cost of Christ on the cross, you're going to so quickly go back to? It's like, okay, I'm good. I'm rescued from the penalty, but I'm still going to enjoy it all my way to heaven. How dare you? We can't do that. Christ died to deliver you from sin. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Past tense. You used to be that, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's your deliverance. And he goes on to say, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When you sin, are you not belittling the deliverance that God worked into your life? And one last thought, when you sin, are you not despising God's provision? 
I shared this with, with many of you this week in my small group and another study, and so I almost feel bad even putting it in the sermon because so many of you have already heard it. I think I shared it at the prayer group too. Um, but this is one of the things that the Lord really taught me about this, this, just this picture of, of longing for those leaks. And I thought, I realized the place of joy in the life of a believer, the place of contentment in the life of a believer. If we are completely satisfied in what God has provided for us, sin has no, no temptation for us. We're, we're not drawn away in the least when we are completely, 100% satisfied in what God has provided us. Right? Is that true? Uh, my dad, he is a connoisseur of pecan pies. And lucky for him, my mom makes them maybe the best pecan pie in the world. The man cannot resist a pecan pie. But last Thanksgiving, he ate and he ate he ate a lot of turkey, ate a lot of potatoes. He got to the point that I get to sometimes when I overeat. I call it the meat sweats. You just your body is rejecting all the food inside you. you. You're filled to the brim. And he's sitting there in front of the plate. He's like totally full of Thanksgiving dinner. And then a piece of pecan pie is placed in front of him. As much as he loves pecan pie, there was no chance he was going to stick a fork in that pecan pie because he was done. He had a wait to digest some food before he can go back. And that's how it is in our lives when we are full to the brim, so satisfied, so overwhelmed, so joyful with everything that God has provided for us. Why would we go off into sin? It has no draw anymore. We don't hunger for it at all anymore because we're filled up with what God has given us. And then the Lord just brought me to this verse this week that to me just drills this home. It's amazing. Proverbs 27.7. Proverbs 27.7 says, The satisfied man abhors honey, but to the famished man, any bitter thing tastes sweet. Isn't that good? The satisfied man abhors honey. I'm not interested in honey, but to the famished man, any bitter thing tastes sweet. To the famished man, oh, those leeks. That would be so good if I had a leek right now. And when we're not satisfied in what God has for us, in the place of life He's put us, and what He's teaching us, if we're not filling up on His Word, if we're not loving worship, the place we have, the body of believers that we have, if we're not just overwhelmed with the blessings He gives us, any bitter thing is going to seem appealing to us. So, I find, in my contemplations, I've, I realize that joy is not the byproduct of walking with Christ. But it's our defense against walking away from Christ. And so maybe starting your days with prayers of gratitude would go so much further in your life in defeating the sin that has a grasp of you or whatever weight you refuse to lay down. Maybe if you just start praising God for what He's given you, um, those sins wouldn't have quite the hold and you wouldn't be longing for the leaks. So that's an examination of the sin. Now I want to kind of give a defense of the judgment because it does seem harsh. The, the judgment we see in verse 6. Uh, it says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now I think our examination of the sin really justifies the judgment, but perhaps if there's someone here that still thinks that God's response is a tad on the harsh side, uh, let, me, let me offer a defense. How many times do you suppose Israel had already rebelled against God up to this point? 
I, I, I was wondering that, and so I, I read through the Pentateuch this weekend, and I just had my notepad next to me, and, uh, and I wrote down every time Israel rebelled against, against God. How many times do you think that happened? No less than 16 times did Israel rebel against God in a magnitudinous way. I mean, not, I'm not talking about someone was picking up sticks on the Sabbath and they had to go stone him or some child was being disobedient. I'm talking about as a nation, as a whole, they were ready to reject God. Sometimes in those 16 hash marks I wrote down, sometimes they were saying, get a new leader. We're going back to Egypt. Sometimes, even twice before they even left Egypt, they're like, Moses, you've really made our work a lot harder. Why don't you just leave? They were just content to stay in Egypt. They constantly wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to stone uh, uh, Aaron. They wanted to stone Moses. They were ta- we're talking about a national rebellion again and again and again. And God didn't let it slide. I mean, God punished them. There were what are six times where God punished Israel or threatened to punish them almost to the point of annihilation. There were six times where God, told, uh, where God punished them or threatened to punish them. Sometimes, I think it was twice, where God told Moses, get away. I'm going I'm to kill them all. You stand back. One time he said, Moses, just walk away from them. I'll start over with you. I'll bring the whole nation out of you. But I'm going I'm to destroy these people. And, and we see um, in, in their rebellion, there's different passages. Um, Exodus 32, 22, Aaron says, These people, you know these people, Moses, how they are set on evil. In Exodus 33, 3, uh, God says, You're going to go to the promised land, but I can't go with you. I'll consume you on the way because you guys are so stubborn. You're a stiff-necked people. A lot of believers have stiff necks like this. They walk around defensive of their sin. Oh, that's just who I am. I've got that personality. I tell you how it is. No, it's sin. And God, God again and again and again punished, threatened to punish. So many times Moses would come through and intercede for the people save a nation that was ready to stone him. And Moses all along was concerned about God's glory. He's like, well, what would the other nations say if you pull them out of Egypt and then they die in the wilderness? You've got to bring them to the promised land, Lord. Your reputation is on the line. And so again and again and again, they keep rebelling. And again and again and again, God keeps punishing and then saving and they come back to God. And so by this time, I mean, this is the same song and dance. They've been on this rodeo quite a few times. And God has about had it. So I think just the sheer number of sins indicates and justifies the judgment that He's about ready to lay down. So let me ask you this. If there's any unbelievers here, um, you know, I hear this off time. Won't, won't God give someone a second chance after they die, before they get to heaven? What, shouldn't, isn't that only fair that they get a second chance after they die that they can then choose if they want Christ or not? Well, how about a third chance or a fourth or a quadrillionth chance? Every breath you take is a chance. Every sermon you hear is a chance. Every verse you read, that's a chance. Every time you wake up and you hear the birds singing and you see creation and deep down in your heart you hear someone had to make this. I'm here for a reason. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you in. And there's a chance. God gives you so many chances. But when you die, that's it. No more chances.
And so the judgment is severe, but only because He's giving you so many chances to turn back and repent. Now, for the believer, this idea of this, this judgment coming in their life, you know, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 17, he uses imagery from this passage. He says, this is the prophet saying, Behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you. And God didn't really send snakes in to Jeremiah's people. What he sent was an invading army, but he's using the picture of the snakes. And just like we have the picture of the leeks, I think the picture of the snakes are good in our lives, where we remember when you sin, you are inviting death into your home, into your marriage, into your occupation, into the church. You are inviting death into your life. And just like those serpents, they're going to come slithering in, sifting up through the sand. You cannot dabble in sin without dealing with the effects of sin. And don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You can fool your spouse, but you can't fool God. You may have me fooled, but God knows what's going on. He knows what time it is, and He's going to give you the judgment that you deserve. If you're a believer, it's going to be discipline. Because he knows I, 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 this child is coming to heaven. And we've got to get rid of this sin before they screw up an entire church, before they destroy their family, before they hurt other people that I've died for. And so God's going to send judgment in, but it's a healing judgment. But here's the point. If you sin, the snakes are coming. You guarantee it. You're not going to get away with it. So we've looked at the sin. We've looked at the judgment. Now let's look at the elements of Salvation. Here we see this in verses 7 through 9. And in this, I just see just five elements of salvation. I think your notes might say four. Do they say four? That's a mistake. They should say five. There's a space there for a fifth one. So write in five there. And I just want to I want to conclude the sermon here by talking to anyone that might be an unbeliever. Because we don't know who's a believer and who's not a believer. Jesus gave many illustrations that said, you know what? You got the wheat and the tares, the and the wheat is the, those that are going to heaven. The tares are the weeds that represent those that are going to hell. And they look the same. They grow up right next to each other. And you're not going to know the difference until the rapture comes. And I know for a fact that there are people that go to church every Sunday. I'm not saying this church. But I'm just saying I know for a fact there's people that go to church and they, they have failed to distinguish the difference between born again and just going to church. They've so surrounded themselves with God's people, maybe they'd be even embarrassed to to confess and, and, and come to Christ because everyone just assumes they are. Well, listen, no one's getting into heaven on anyone else's reputation other than Jesus Christ's reputation. Okay, so no spouse is going to get you to heaven. And also think about the, uh, uh, the, the prodigal son. Went away, he was in sin, represented a lost person, and he never wanted to go back to his father because he was afraid he was going to be judged. And when he did go back, what happened? He was celebrated. He was rewarded. He was loved. And if you come to this church, or maybe you're watching online, and you know you're not a believer, and the only thing that's keeping you from coming to Christ is, well, I just, you know, I, I don't want to, that's going to be embarrassing. I, everyone thinks I'm a believer already. I, I, I'm just, you know, listen, you will be, there is no one that would ever get saved that God's people would not rally around and rejoice and celebrate. So, this last point is just for those that might be an unbeliever that is listening to this sermon. There are five elements of salvation that are displayed in this passage. The first one is confession. Look at verse 7. It says, 
And when the people, then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Confession. With the mouth, confession is made known. And as the heart believes, you are saved. Confession is necessary. Confession is basically just saying, I agree with God about my sin. I agree with you that my sin is rotten, that I deserve death, that it's an offense against a holy God. For the first time, I'm articulating and I'm believing that I am wrong, God. You are right. That's what confession is. And we see they did this. And now again, in Psalm 78, verse 34, that's that passage that rehearses this story, we see that not only confession, but the second thing is repentance. An actual change of course. In Psalm 78, 34, it says, when He killed them, they sought Him. They repented and sought God earnestly. So, confession isn't enough if you think it's like the magic words that aren't going to get you to heaven, but you don't have to change anything. You have to have confession and then repentance. A change of course, a change of belief, a change of actions. In, in Psalm 78, it describes it as seeking God earnestly. God does not honor the curious. He honors the committed. And those that go after God will find Him. That's a promise from Scripture. And so if you confess your sins and you repent and you say, you know what? I am not walking that path anymore. What Troy put on display today in getting baptized, he says, I'm on a new path now. I'm walking in newness of life. That's critical. That's necessary. Repentance. Confession. Repentance. But then also, you're going to need an intercessor. You need someone that's going to go between. You need to come to somebody. And this is they came to Moses. And remember, Moses is a beautiful picture of Christ in our lives. But in verse 7, it says, the people came to Moses. They needed someone to intervene. Who are you going to go to? You can't come to me. Don't go to Harry. He's a good man. Not good enough. There's only one person. It's Jesus Christ. So you need an intercessor. We looked at that last week. Uh, fourthly, you need an offer of appeasement. You need an offer of appeasement. Uh, so they, they said, go to the Lord for us. So Moses prayed for the people. There's the intercession. And then verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. That was the deal that God made. Now here's the thing about the offer of appeasement. You aren't allowed to set the parameters you can't determine what God wants. That's not how it works. When you offend someone, you know, we see this with children all the time. Well, I, you know what, I, I know, but I did this and that should make it better. You don't get to decide that. It's the offended party that gets to decide how to make it right. And in this situation, God said, put a serpent up on a pole. And if anyone just looks at it, all they have to do is look at it and they will live. That was the offer of appeasement. But the final step, if you're going to, the final element of salvation you have to have a response of faith. You have to respond in some way. And how amazing. What did He ask them to do? Not much at all. All they had to do was look. They had to cast their eyes on a cross that had a bronze serpent on it and they would be healed. That's all they had to do. Would you believe that there's probably some people in that camp that were bitten by the snake, were dying in the sand, and maybe had a spouse holding their hand, pleading, just look, look up at the cross. Please, just look at the cross. I'm not going to look at that. That's stupid. There's no way that's going to save me. No, I'm not going to do it. I, I bet you there were people that died that day because they refused to just look at the cross. 
but anyone that looked was saved. The dying eyes just cast up, seize the cross, they live. Same is true for us. The same is true for you. That response of faith is going to Christ as your intercessor. Saying, Christ, you know, think about it. Why, why the snake on the cross? The snake on the cross was a representation, a visualization of the consequence of sin. And when we see Christ on the cross, we see a visualization of the consequence of our sin. When we see the crucified Christ, it was a focal point of judgment. And so, Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 14 and 15, He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. And that believe, that's just the looking to the cross. That means you're casting the the eyes of your heart on Him, and you're saying, I believe, I want it. I I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I don't care if anyone's going to judge me. This is between me and God, and I'm coming to Him. I'm confessing. I'm repenting. I'm changing course. I'm going after Jesus with all I have, and I'm just going to look at the cross, and in looking, He's going to give me life. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come up right now, and we're going to close in a word of prayer, and we're going to sing a song. And, um, you know, when I was a boy, it it was a common thing. We had a stage kind of like this, and, and we had what was called altar calls. So you get to the end of the sermon and they'd play a hymn and, and it would make you really sad and emotional. And then if you needed to make a decision, you'd come up and, and you'd kneel down and you would pray. And sometimes maybe a pastor or a woman would come up next to you and, and kind of put their arm around you and pray. And sometimes people would be crying. And sometimes they would just kneel in the front row and then they'd go back to their seat. And that's, that's not a bad thing. Uh, we don't do it a lot. Um, I do believe that every time you come to church, you need to be changed in some way. Every time you hear the Word of God preached, you should be making some decision. And so that's why we don't do this a lot, because it can sometimes come to create the idea that unless I go forward, I'm not really growing, I'm not really making any changes. So we don't do it a lot, but it's not a bad thing. Maybe the Lord has been working in your life in a special way, and sometimes you just need to kind of put uh, you know, a, a marker in the road. And you just need to have something in your mind and say, you know what, that Sunday God said something special to me. And I did. I walked the aisle. Or maybe I just went discreetly over to one side or the other because I needed. I couldn't just stand and sing. I needed to kneel down and I needed to pray. You know, we want to provide that opportunity for you today while we sing. Maybe there's someone here that's not a believer. Maybe there's someone here that you know, man, I, I need that. I hear God call me for the first time. I'm super aware of my sins for the first time. This sounds like relief. And you just need someone to pray with. I'm just going to be standing right here on that front row. And if you, if you are that person, would you just come up to me? And I'd be happy to step aside. We can pray together. We can talk. But let's stand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to sing together in whatever way you see fit. Maybe it's in your heart. Maybe it's right there in your seat. Let's do some business with God. Father, we come before you now. And grateful for your word. There's so much to be taught here, Lord. So much to be learned. And I just pray that your spirit would apply it. Lord, if there's somebody here that needs to make a decision, I just pray, Lord, that you would so stir their heart by your spirit that they cannot resist. I pray that you would bring them to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.